This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter and the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You're listening to Fox Sports Radio. Radio. Welcome in the latest episode of Wins and Losses. I'm excited to be underway here because I think we have got a fantastic guest that is going to take us through a lot of really interesting things about the rise of the internet, the rise of business based on the internet, and also big tech in general. And he is David Sachs. He has got an incredible history. I don't actually know where you're from or where you grew up. Uh, he is a partner at Kraft, invests in all different sorts of tech companies and beyond out there. But where did you grow up, David? Like, what was your background? And thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, great to be here, Clay. Um, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, and my parents immigrated to the United States when I was five years old. We actually moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where I basically grew up until I left for college. All right, I had no idea. So Memphis, Tennessee, uh, how much of a culture shock can you remember? I can't imagine the conveyor belt between South Africa and Memphis, Tennessee is very common. How did that end up your location in the United States? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My dad's a doctor, and they wanted to immigrate from South Africa. They didn't agree with the political situation there uh, back in the 1970s, and uh, he got a job at the University of Tennessee Medical Center practicing and teaching, and so that's where we ended up moving to. Yeah, it was a pretty big culture shock. Are you a sports fan? Did uh, growing up in Memphis in any way uh, sort of in, embed itself in you as a college football, college basketball fan, or were you sort of not that interested in sports as a kid growing up? Well, there were only two real sports in Memphis at that time. There was Memphis State Tigers basketball. Yep. That was huge. Um, everyone looked forward to that. I remember uh, one year we went to the Final Four with, I think Keith Lee was sort of the star player then. And the other uh, sport, if you want to call it that, in Memphis was uh, wrestling. And oh, yeah. every Monday night was wrestling at the Mid-South Coliseum. And those were really the only two big uh, sports in Memphis at that time. Obviously it changed, but... Uh, Did but you go to those old school wrestling matches? You know, my parents would never let me go, unfortunately. But I remember, you know, Jerry the King Lawler was a oh, yeah. big wrestling time, and I would watch that stuff on TV, and, you know, I was a fan. 
Now, as a kid growing up in Nashville, the Nashville-Memphis rivalry was very real. Did you feel it in Memphis when you were growing up? Were you aware that as a Memphian you were feuding constantly with Nashvillians? A little bit. You know, our high school football team would eventually, you know, would sometimes go to the state finals and uh, play against teams from Nashville. So, yeah, there was a little bit of that. Where did you go away to college from Memphis? I, I went to Stanford as an undergrad. All right, so how much of a culture shock was that? All right, so you you come from South Africa, you then end up in Memphis, and you make the trip out to Palo Alto. Stanford was a lot different place then, certainly, than it is now, but that wasn't a very common route. How did you pick Stanford as the place you wanted to go to? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Stanford, I mean, to be honest, it was just the best school that I got into and had yep. a great reputation. And um, it seemed like a great place to go to school. The, the campus is sort of really idyllic, like you said, being in, in Palo Alto. Uh, fantastic weather. Uh, seemed like just an amazing place. And, yeah, it was a pretty big culture shock because the campus was very liberal and Memphis is, uh, or Tennessee in general, sort of a little bit more conservative. So there was a difference there. But, um, but the uh, you know the important thing about going to Stanford in the early '90s for me was that it got me into the whole tech scene when I graduated, and uh, that that ended up being very important for my career. By the way, I wanted to go to Stanford Law School. They didn't let me in. I had never been to California until I was in college, like 21 or 22. And the first time I went to the Stanford campus, it really is heaven on earth. I mean, it is an incredible, uh, incredible place. So uh, so you graduate from Stanford. And uh, do you remember the first time you ever got on the internet, by the way? That's a good question. Um, I don't remember that. Uh, I guess, you know, it must have been in the mid-90s. People were starting to use Yahoo. Um, it, maybe I was in law school. You know, after Stanford, I went to law school at the University of Chicago. And uh, it must have been around that time. And, you know, I thought I had missed the whole internet thing because, I had friends at Stanford who graduated in 1995. That which that was the year that Netscape went public, and it kind of ushered in the the dawn oh, yeah. of the commercial. And there were a bunch of you know really interesting companies getting started around then. There was you know eBay and Amazon and Yahoo. And if you went to graduate from Stanford in '95, you would get easily pulled into all that. But because I graduated in '94, I kind of felt like I missed it, and I actually ended up in law school. And it wasn't until 1999 when uh, an old friend of mine from Stanford called me up and told me about a startup he was founding uh, called Confinity, but eventually got renamed PayPal. And that was Peter Thiel. And so Peter kind of pulled me back to Palo Alto in 1999. Um, so, so the Stanford connection ended up being very important, but it took five years for me to come back and do Internet stuff. How did you like law school? Law school was great. I mean, University of Chicago is a very serious place, and um, you know, it it uh, it was rigorous and a lot of great teachers, and I enjoyed it. You know, but by, by after three years of it, I felt like I was ready to do something else. It wasn't a desire of mine to do law, uh, but intellectually, I thought it was really interesting, and um, you know, I enjoyed the experience. Did you ever practice at all as as a part of a big firm? Did you do anything legal related? I also obviously went to law school at Vanderbilt, as as most listeners will know. And I kind of had the sense early on that law was not for me. It sounds like you kind of did as well. But did you go into any sort of big firm lifestyle or any actual practice of law after you graduated? 
You know, I spent a summer at a at a big law firm, and that kind of reinforced the decision for me that it's <laughs> yeah. not something that I wanted to do. You know, part of it was always that I was interested in business, but I always felt like I wanted to be the decision maker, you know, and not not sort of the person carrying out the instructions. And, you know, lawyers are ultimately advisors to the principal. Uh, and, you know, many of them do, you know, fantastic work. But I always felt like I wanted to be on the other side of the table and, and uh, do something more directly in business. Would you advise, because I get asked this question all the time, would you advise kids who think, hey, I don't necessarily want to be a lawyer to go to law school? If we got a 21-year-old who's listening right now and they're going to college, is it a move that you would make again? Would you advise your own kids or kids who ask you for advice whether to go to law school or not? No, I, I would tell them not to, because I think the only reason to go to law school these days is if you really enjoy the law and want to be a lawyer. You know, maybe you want to practice law or you want to be a clerk for a judge or, you know, maybe become a judge or an elected official or something like that. I think the reason to go to law school today is because you're really interested in the law. Now, back when I did it, and you did it. There were a lot of people who did it because uh, I think there, there weren't as many uh, options or it wasn't as clear what you should do. There were a lot more people back in those days. We're talking, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, who went to law school knowing they would go into business. And I just think that today there's so many more options. If you want to do that, you can just do it directly. And, you know, spending three years of law school and all the expense of that, uh, there's just much more direct ways of getting into business now. You know, in the mid-90s, even though I had some entrepreneurial instincts and desire to do something in business, I really had no idea how to do it. It wasn't clear, like, how do you start a company? And so as a result, you kind of end up going to law school as the next step. Uh, but, uh, but, but today, I wouldn't encourage it. Okay, so you mentioned you leave law school and go back to work for a company that would become PayPal. Uh, I imagine a lot of people are somewhat familiar with PayPal. I've read a lot of the corporate history of uh, PayPal because I find it to be pretty fascinating. What, how would you describe it for people out there? You go in at 99. What is the experience like? Who are you working with? I think you mentioned Peter Thiel. Uh, and what did you guys end up achieving? Yeah, I mean, it was a really incredible group of people who today are kind of known as the PayPal mafia. Of yes. Course, the, you know, people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and Max Levchin and Reed Hoffman and the list goes on and on. Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, who founded YouTube. Uh, Rulof Boto is our CFO who went on to become the head of Sequoia, which is a famous venture capital firm. So a lot of really incredible people were part of that founding uh, team. And, um, and you know, it, today PayPal is a $100 billion, you know, publicly listed company. So it's, you know, 20 years later, it's a very important company still today. Uh, but it was really a pretty incredible group of people. When I joined in 99, it was about six months before the dot-com crash. And yeah. PayPal was primarily built, although it was founded the year before the dot-com crash, it was primarily built after and in the wake of the dot-com crash. And it was a very tough environment. Lot, you know, All these other startups were going out of business all around us, and somehow we managed to persevere and create you know, a successful outcome. And uh, by early 2002, we were the first company, first uh, tech company to IPO since the dot-com crash. 
Uh, and like I said, today it's you know a hundred billion dollar publicly traded company. Okay, so what do you attribute um, there being such an unbelievable amount of talent, the so-called PayPal mafia? You ran through a lot of those guys who not only were successful in building PayPal into a company that could go public in 2002 and survive the dot-com implosion when everything else crashes. What attracted that amount of talent to that particular company at that point in time? It's interesting. I think the most important thing to realize is that Although these people and these names are sort of celebrated today, they were kind of nobodies back then. And, you know, we were all pretty young at the start of our careers. You know, when PayPal IPO'd in 2002, the I was the average age on the S1, which is the sort of corporate filing documents, and I was 29 years old. So, um, you know, we weren't even 30 years old yet, this, this executive team, this founding team. And one of the ways that we all came together is through friendship networks. You know, Peter Thiel recruited his friends who had worked at, or sorry, who had gone to school with him at Stanford. That was the case with me. Uh, Max Levchin, who is the CTO, he recruited fellow engineers that he had gone to school with at U of I. And that was pretty much how the team was collected and came together is we recruited our friends. And the main reason for that is nobody else would would work for us. Uh, Joining a startup, (laughs) in the early 2000s was considered a very risky thing to do. And it was really hard to convince people to join this fledgling company. So how did you meet Peter Thiel at Stanford? Do you remember the first time you guys met? What drew you together? Yeah, so I met Peter at at Stanford. I was an undergrad. He was actually in law school at that time because he's a few years had founded the Stanford Review, which was the conservative, you know, slash libertarian student newspaper on campus and I ended up becoming a writer and then the editor-in-chief of the Stanford Review and um, so we you know sort of bonded initially over politics and our take on what was happening on campus and then as you know after that back in 1995 we ended up writing a book together about what was happening at Stanford and that was sort of the you know beginning of a, a friendship that you know perseveres to, to this day what's your favorite thing that you guys published as a part of the stanford review was there an article you wrote was there an article somebody else wrote while you were an editor do you recall something where you thought man we really nailed it here and maybe had an impact that we weren't anticipating being able to have well you know back in the this is going back to the late 80s early 90s there was this huge debate at stanford over the the canon the reading list and there was a big protest on campus that became very famous where the protesters started chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. And there was this sense that there was this protest movement to overturn and throw out what they called the dead white males of the curriculum. And they succeeded. I mean, they really, they ended up kind of purging the canon of these classic works and replacing it with something very different. And that was really the beginning of this sort of cultural revolution on campus that kind of persists till today. And I think a lot of the political changes that you've seen in our society over the last you know, 30 years are really downstream of the changes that happened on campus because what's happened for the last 30 years is that they've been successfully graduating waves of, um, of students who've been indoctrinated into this ideology and those students have gone on to populate many of the institutions in our, in our culture. 
And so if you think about, you know, whether it's woke capitalism or, uh, you know, any of these other institutions that are kind of pushing this idea of wokeness today, that all started on campus in the late 80s, early 90s. We called it political correctness back then, but it was the same idea. 2002, PayPal goes public. Uh, Stock took off. I remember I I went back and looked before we talked because I was like, man, I think that stock was still because people you're right. The dot com implosion had happened, but you guys had built back up to a, uh, a really impressive spot. Was there something that you bought or something you were excited to buy? Do you remember a purchase after I'm assuming you had some decent wealth probably for the first time in your life, certainly on that level? Yeah, you know, um, Peter and I both did the very cliche thing, which I now cringe a little bit at, at doing, which is buying a Ferrari. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, what but, kind of uh, Ferrari did you get? Like, and 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 this is before like it was kind of probably commonplace for a lot of these Silicon Valley companies to be going public. Like, did you just go into a dealership in Silicon Valley? Yeah, pretty much. I think I, I got uh, I got a three five five Spider as like one of those, you know. It was like a black convertible. It was a really cool car, um, but you know, it was like I felt like it was like driving an egg. You know, it was it was uh, so delicate. I felt like you know I was going to mess it up every time I drove it, and uh, you know, eventually, uh, eventually got rid of it. But what um, was the yeah. girl reaction to you having a Ferrari? Like, was that something that was impressive? Because you always hear about rich guys driving fancy cars, and sometimes you got poor guys who drive fancy cars to try to look like rich guys. Net positive or net negative return on value in terms of impressions on women when you have a Ferrari? Yeah, you know, I don't think it really helped me that much. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it helped me that much. Um, but uh, you know, I, you know, I was only thirty years old at that time, so yeah. it was the kind of that that you do when you're young. And um, yeah, you know, I guess I enjoyed it for a couple of years, and then uh, you know, ended up ended up selling it. I actually got instead. Uh, one of the first Teslas that Elon made. Um, and that, that was an interesting car. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, three-time Pro Bowler LeVar Arrington, and I couldn't be more excited to announce a new podcast called Up On Game. What is Up On Game, you ask? Along with my fellow Pro Bowler, TJ Hushmanzada, and Super Bowl champion, yep, that's right, Plexico Burris. You can only name a show with that type of talent on it. Up On Game. We're going to be sharing our real-life experiences loaded with teachable moments. Listen to Up On Game with me, LeVar. Arrington, TJ Hushmanzada, and Plexico Burris on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year 
at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So I don't even know anything about that. When did that... Was that like a early model Tesla? I mean, he's like kind of almost uh, making out of the back of a of a studio somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the the first version of the Tesla was called the Roadster, and it was the the first car that Elon made, and it was more of a sports car, and it it was in the body of they they used the like the the body of I think it was like an old. I want to say Fiat or something like that. It was a really small car. It was a two-seater and didn't have a lot of features. It didn't even have power steering. It was pretty hard to drive, to be honest. Uh, but Elon, but it was very quick. It had that speed from the electric batteries. Basically, you know, the torque was almost, there was no gear shifting, and the torque felt you know almost unlimited. And so it was a very fast car, but it was small and kind of hard to drive. But it got Tesla off the ground. What Elon did is I think he sold maybe a thousand of those cars. Um, and, you know, the idea was we're, you know, we're going to sell a sports car because he could charge a lot of money for them. And then on the heels of that, he would make a mass market car. And that's what he did is, you know, I think he stopped production of the Roadster after maybe a thousand. They sold about a thousand of them and then used that money build the Tesla Model S, which was their first real mainstream car. And that was a really fantastic car. That was you know, easily the best car I'd driven till that time. And, you know, since then they've gone on to do the Model 3 and the Model Y, and, you know, Tesla's become the most valuable car company in the world. Tesla is an interesting story, and I think, and I'm curious if you were the same way, one of the things that fascinates me about a lot of the guys who made money at PayPal is many people make tens of millions of dollars and they throw up the peace sign and they say, okay, I've got money to be able to basically do whatever I want for the rest of my life, but I'm not interested in pushing all that money back into the center of the table and make bigger bets going forward. It seems like a lot of the PayPal guys, and maybe it's the psychology of the company in general, the risk-taking culture, I'm curious how you would analyze it, almost looked at the money that you guys made at PayPal as table stakes that allowed you to up your wagers on things that were even more important to you. Did you have a conscious decision about making that kind of choice? Because certainly you've gone on to other companies, and it's easy for somebody who has a success on the level of PayPal to say, hey, you know, I've made my money. I can have a really comfortable life 
you guys, it seems like a lot of you said, okay, I've got the table stakes to do what I really wanted to do. Conscious decision, unconscious, am I analyzing the larger culture in your mind uh, correctly? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, nobody felt, out of that you know original PayPal crew, nobody felt like, oh, let's just retire now. Um, they all went on to do you know greater things, and I think that's why the PayPal mafia is kind of remembered today as not just for PayPal, but what they all did afterwards. Um, you know, Elon famously bet really his entire fortune on Tesla and SpaceX. He was, you know, a few weeks away from going bankrupt and, you know, ended up just back in 2008, the financial crisis and uh, put his last dime into Tesla and SpaceX to save those companies and then ultimately succeeded. And that's why he's uh, the world's richest man today, or one of them is because he really double, triple down and kind of risked every penny he had on those ventures. But everybody else in the group really went on to do really impressive things as well. I mean, uh, Peter went on to become a VC. He wrote the first check as an angel investor into Facebook. I think it was a $500,000 check. And then that turned into billions. And then he was the founding investor at Palantir, which is now a successful public company and you know also founded uh, Founders Fund, which is a VC firm. It's done very well. Uh, Max Levchin, who's the CTO of PayPal, founded a firm, which is now a publicly traded company, went public in the last year. That's worth, you know, billions um, and so on down the line. I mean, everyone went on to do different things. I, after PayPal, created another Internet company called Yammer, which was an enterprise software company. And it was one of the first enterprise software companies to use viral tactics that I had learned at PayPal. So, yeah, we all went on to go do different things. And I think it's partly a function of the fact that we were all very young and still had a lot of ambition and nobody felt like they had hit some number or something where they were just going to retire. Is it difficult to, when you have a big, big hit, like you guys did with PayPal, is it difficult to decide what the next step you're going to take is in any way, because you're almost over analyzing it and, trying to equal or have that same kind of success? You mentioned Yammer. How many things did you look at in a significant way from a business opportunity perspective before you made the leap there? And what was it that made you make that choice? Yeah, so for me, I mean, I think you raise a good point, which is, you know, once you've had a success, you know, is there a danger of kind of overanalyzing the next thing and being reticent to to have a failure, you know, because now you've had a success and, or it could be the opposite, too, right, where you expect everything. I mean, it's just you're going to be uh, analyzed in some way based on your prior success. And I'm just kind of fascinated by how you make the decision to take the next opportunity. Yeah, so for me, it's it's always about the product. And what happens is I get a product idea and I start you know turning it over my head and start developing the idea and I get kind of obsessed with it. And so it's my passion for the product that drives everything else. And I don't worry so much about what the business outcome is going to be. I just try to design the best product and try to figure out how to get it into as many people's hands as possible, solve the distribution problem, and um, and kind of let that drive it and then let the chips fall where they may in terms of the actual financial outcome. I think it's not healthy to be thinking so much about you know how much money you're going to make because that's not something that's going to fuel you on a daily basis, when, especially when times get tough. You really want to have passion for the idea and the mission of the company 
uh, and the product. And that's the thing that's going to motivate you on a daily basis. So you sell uh, Yammer for over a billion dollars, basically four years after its founding. Microsoft buys it. And then I'm kind of fascinated by your move into venture capital. But before we talk about that, are you noticing along the line, you get to Silicon Valley in 99, you're right there at the heartbeat of this culture. Uh, Zuckerberg's going to move Facebook out there uh, and it continues to grow and become an incredible incubator of so many different ideas. Is the culture substantially evolving as you see it? Do you like the evolution that you're seeing in Silicon Valley? Do you dislike it? Well, the culture of Silicon Valley was always a really important contributor to the success um, of all the companies that were there uh, historically. And so, you know, I really felt when when I moved back to Silicon Valley back in 1999 to do PayPal, it really felt like the center of the universe. You would drive along the 101 freeway. And you would see all these office buildings, these you know shiny, gleaming new office buildings that had just uh, been constructed in the last couple of years, and they all had the logos of companies that had, didn't exist a few years before. And it really felt like something magical was happening, where you could build these incredible companies so quickly, and there was nowhere else in the world you could really do that. There was, you know, th- there was nowhere else where you could find the money to do it, where you'd get VCs to write you these checks. Uh, so quickly, you know, without spending months thinking about it, they could do it in days or weeks, and you could find the talent that you needed to build these companies. So it was really a magical place. And what happened between, say, 2000 and 2020, over that 20-year period, is that Silicon Valley just kind of getting it got bigger and bigger. Uh, if you go back to the 1990s, it was sort of clustered around Palo Alto. But, you know, it got it kept growing to the point where it included San Francisco and the East Bay and then it went south to San Jose. And so Silicon Valley really became Silicon Bay and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And it created this sort of bounty of riches for the city of San Francisco, even though the, San, the city itself had really done nothing to encourage Silicon Valley. And in fact, had a lot of policies and politicians who were hostile to the tech industry it you know made uh, San Francisco this uh, beneficiary of these incredible riches, and we can talk more about that. But then what happened, I think, during COVID, and this is really new, this is in the last couple of years, is that because of COVID, and you know that started this whole era of remote work and distributed work, people started doing their jobs from home, and then they realized that they could do these jobs from anywhere. And so this whole tech industry over the last couple of years has decentralized a lot. And you start to see the rise of tech hubs in places like Austin and Miami. Um, you know, New York City has gotten strong. Uh, L.A. and Seattle were already somewhat strong. But you're seeing now tech emerge everywhere. And it's not just Silicon Valley anymore. And I'd say maybe 50% of the companies we invest in today are still in Silicon Valley or, or the Bay Area but the other 50% are increasingly in a distributed number of locations. And I think it's really good for the country, actually, that this wealth and prosperity that's being created by the new economy is not just going to be in the Bay Area, but it's going to be all over the United States. Yeah, I'll give you, by the way, we're talking to David Sachs. Uh, this is Wins and Losses. I'm Clay Travis. I'll give you an example of that, David. I spent a lot of time going out to LA, um, obviously, because Fox was based there for Fox Sports. And 
spent months and months out there and I would go around and look at everybody's houses in LA and then I you know you see how much they cost and then I'd come back to the Nashville area and I would be like you know my house that that we initially bought here uh, would cost millions and millions of dollars in LA and it was a fraction of that in Nashville right Um, and what I've seen with COVID is it accelerated things to such an extent that now there's not as big of a difference. You know, a lot of people are cashing out in California, in New York, in the Chicago area, and moving to where I live in the Nashville area. And the the prices have skyrocketed in Nashville. And I think that's because the top 10% of income earners, to your point, have realized that they can basically live anywhere in the United States and do their same job. And absent COVID, many of them would not have risked that, right? You would never have said, oh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and relocate and do my job that I had been doing in California, in Nashville or in Austin or a place like that. And uh, and certainly people who are running hedge funds in New York are finally saying, screw it. I'm not going to pay, you know, 15 percent state income tax when I can go to Florida, pay nothing, be in better weather, get a bigger place. But it seems like in many of these areas that uh, lack of similarity in housing prices has vanished, right? Um, And I think it's reflective of what you're saying, which is people with high-level talent and, frankly, high-level incomes being more evenly distributed across the country than they might have been in the the late 90s and the early 2000s, for sure. Yeah, I I think that's right, and I think it's all been enabled by this cultural shift that we don't all have to meet in person. Almost all of my meetings these days are by Zoom. It's just, you know, the the fact that I invest in, they are fine with meeting by Zoom. And in fact, they like it better. It saves everyone, you know, a bunch of drive time and I can be wherever I am and um, and they can be in a different city. So everything's kind of moved to Zoom in, in the VC industry. Uh, I'm not sure that's totally true if you're, if you're trying to build a company. I think there is some value in having people under the same roof working together, but certainly for a VC, everything's moved to Zoom. And so if, that's the case. If if you're somebody who who's kind of a knowledge worker and, and do your job remotely from anywhere, now you're kind of freed up to live anywhere you want. You don't have to just live in the in the in your sort of industry town. And um, and so yeah, there's been a lot more decentralization. I mean, it used to be that if you wanted to do tech in a serious way, you'd have to go to the Bay Area. Or if you wanted to do entertainment in a serious way, you have to go to L.A. Or finance was in New York, um, and so on down the line. But now people are liberated. And so I think cities are starting to realize that they're competing for knowledge workers, um, you know, not just companies anymore. You know, cities used to compete to get the company headquarters to move to their city. Now they're kind of competing for individual knowledge workers to make that decision. And the low-tax states or no-tax states like Florida and Texas um, are just seeing an or, you know, are incredible beneficiaries of that. And if you look at the migration stats across the United States, all the states that are growing right now are basically the zero tax or low tax states. And the states that are seeing the biggest outflows are California, New York, and the other states that have very high taxes. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really big change. We're talking to David Sachs. All right, so you now do venture capital. I'm not an expert in venture capital at all. I know just enough to be good enough at content that I can build a business and be able to sell it, but I wouldn't be great at spreadsheets or anything like that. Um, What percentage of companies that you look at do you end up investing in uh, by the time they go through their fundraising rounds? Like what kind of hit rate would a fund like yours 
have in terms of the percentage of companies that you're investing in? I mean, if you probably one in a thousand. Wow. Um, but yeah, but I mean, obviously that's not me. I can't take a, a thousand meetings without going crazy. Right. Um, so we have a we have a team of you know close to forty people now, and between all of them, they look at thousands of companies every year for us to make you know um, one to two dozen investments at, at various stages. So it might be a little better hit rate than that. It might be more like one in five hundred or something like that, but. That doesn't mean that every company we go deep on, right? It might mean that we take a meeting or it might just be that they send us their information. Um, but our top of funnel when we measure it is is thousands of companies. Um, what is your biggest hit? What is the company that you invested in as a venture capital investor and it has been an absolute home run? Well, before so I started Craft in 2017, about five years ago, to kind yep. of institutionalize and professionalize what I was doing. But I've been investing, you know, pretty much since you know after we sold PayPal in 2002. Uh, probably the, the biggest hit to date would be investing in Facebook back in, geez, uh, I can't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was like 2005 or 2006. That you know, what kind of valuation would Facebook have had at the time that you invested? Well, I invested in a in the growth round, so I wasn't as early as Peter. Peter invested like at a five million dollar valuation. I think by the time I invested, it was sort of at a at a five hundred million dollar valuation or something like that. Um, and then it went public at fifty a fifty million dollar valuation. Today, it's about five hundred billion. Um, yeah, you know, there were some other ones too. I mean, I invested in um, Palantir. I invested in Airbnb, Slack. Um, SpaceX, you know, Elon's company, uh, which has done phenomenally well. Did you invest in Tesla? You know, <laughs> I don't know how I missed that, but I, I bought one of the original Teslas, but I did not invest in the company. And that was Did you look at the Tesla? I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Did you look at any of the VC money when they raised and say, hey, I'm consciously not going to make that choice? Like, I, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. You like the car uh, and obviously you're friends with Elon. I'm just sure, uh, curious how you didn't end up in there. Well, I didn't. I didn't look at it. I wasn't a professional VC or anything, so I didn't look at it. You know, he never presented it to me. Um, right. I certainly could have called him up and said, "Hey, could I invest?" I actually did that with SpaceX. Um, I emailed him and said, "You know, hey, can I invest?" And he said, "Sure." So I invested personally, and then we invested as a VC later. Um, you know, I don't know why it didn't occur to me. I just, I guess, I just thought that the idea of a new car company was so far outside the realm of what I thought. I knew about investing, you know, because all the other investments I was making were software investments or, or, yeah. or tech investments. And I guess what I didn't realize is that Elon was basically creating an iPad on wheels. And uh, I shouldn't have just seen it as a car company. I should have really seen it as like a fundamental tech innovation. And so I guess maybe I just didn't have the, the imagination to see what a radical innovation it would be. And I'm curious, uh, so those are a lot of hits. Obviously, Tesla, maybe not a, not a hit. What's the worst decision you've made in terms of not investing or investing in your like, so I'll give you an example, small level. I, I don't even know if you know this. I decided that I would get into the pants business early on when I launched OutKick. And the idea, I think, was the right one, which was I don't want to be uh, reliant upon advertising dollars to monetize my business. I would rather, my content business, I would rather own businesses that I could advertise against instead of having to go out hat in hand always selling ad dollars, right? And so find things that 
overlap with uh, the audience that I'm already reaching from a content perspective, things that they would want to buy. And, you know, at some point when you're staring, trying to tell the difference between, you know, one Pantone color and another one, like the difference between Auburn orange and Tennessee orange for somebody, frankly, who may be a little bit uh, colorblind and also certainly is not <laughs> is not fashion savvy, uh, you know, and, and shipping them in and tie dyeing and the sizing and pants are really actually a complicated business. So I lost like $50,000 pretty fast in pants. And I was like, this was such a stupid idea. You know, you see athletes who go broke and, you know, if they did a documentary on me, it'd be like Clay Travis decided to go into the pants business. He lost money. Was there anything you got into on a bad perspective where you were like, this is just such a stupid business that I ended up getting involved in and or something that you looked at, looked at heavily, then passed on and it ended up being wildly successful? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things I've invested in that haven't worked. I mean, this is this is absolutely a batting average game, and nobody bats, you know, a thousand. What's um, a good What's a good batting average in the VC business? Like, what are you shooting for? I know your returns overall, but what kind of hit rate should you have if you're doing a good job in VC investing? Well, it's probably like baseball. I mean, if you're batting 300 or something, you're like Hall yeah. of Fame, <laughs> right? You know? Um, yeah, I mean, really. Although it's not just. Um, I mean, you'll appreciate this, but it's not just batting average; it's also slugging, slugging. Percentage, oh yeah, because you, know? you can hit, you can hit like a thousand home runs on one swing, right? As opposed to just being able to maximize, you know, one run, uh, you can get exactly. a thousand runs on a swing. Exactly, and and that's and that's really what that, that's one of the biggest um, things about the VC business that's kind of non-intuitive to people is that it's not about how many losers that you have; it's about the magnitude of your winners. And sometimes, you know, you can be wrong about everything, but that one decision you were right about ends up returning, you know, 10 times your funds. So um, that tends to be the, if you look at kind of the great VC funds, it's not about how often they were right. It's about the magnitude of their winners. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, but I mean, I think we've had a pretty good batting average. You know, I've been in about 25 unicorn companies. Um, you know, we define unicorns as companies that end up being uh, worth a billion dollars or more. And, um, you know, the, the most recent one for us was was crypto. Um, we, you know, we made some crypto investments back in 2017, 2018, and they returned our first fund. So, you know, that was sort of like a 40 or 50x investment in five years based on making, you know, based on investing in crypto. I think you also invested in a movie, right? Um, thank yeah. you for smoking. Am I right about this? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and have you gotten involved in other creative endeavors, which are certainly different than uh, trying to analyze software companies or tech related funds? Yeah, yeah. I guess if you're if you're um, looking for me to identify a bad investment, <laughs> I'd say anything in the movie industry. Now, actually, we didn't lose money on Thank You for Smoking. We actually uh, did fine. It ended up being one of the big hits of, uh, I think, 2005, 2006. Um, this was an independent movie. I financed it um, along with a few friends, Peter and Elon, all uh, contributed, and they were executive producers. This was a script I found that was written by Jason Reitman, who ended up directing the movie based on a book by Christopher Buckley. And um, I just thought it was a fantastic So, uh, yeah, this script. is this is amazing to me. Like, So how do you find a script, right? Like, so... Uh, you are thinking after you've made some money in PayPal, hey, I like movies, certainly at Stanford, you've talked about the culture of political correctness and whatnot. Were you Mm -hmm. thinking, hey, maybe I'll get involved in the entertainment industry in some way? 
Yeah, I mean, it was just sort of an entrepreneurial venture for me where I decided to create a movie production company, and it was like a startup. You know, we're like, let's let's see, let's understand what it takes to make a movie. Let's try and make a better one. And we went out looking at projects, and we probably looked at a thousand scripts and thought that Jason had written the best one I'd seen. And someone had given it to me as a writing sample for him, actually. And the question I asked was, wait, why is this a writing sample? Why, why don't we just make this? And, and the reason why is because the rights had been fragmented. Warner Brothers owned the book, and Jason's script was actually owned by Mel Gibson's company, Icon. And anyway, we spent something like two years trying to unravel the rights situation and acquire all the rights. And when we finally did that, then we could make it as an independent movie. And we did that, and we took it to the Toronto Film Festival and Sundance and uh, it ended up being a pretty big hit um, in terms, you know, it was a hit creatively, won a lot of awards. And it did something like $25 million at the box office on an $8 million budget. And, you know, it's one of these kind of cult movies. That's it's a great movie. Today. Yeah, and it launched Jason Reitman's career. He's ended up becoming a very, very big uh, director in Hollywood. The, you know, my takeaway from it, though, as in terms of business, is that, you know, we did a little better, but not much than just get our money back. And so it made a lot of money, but it mainly made money for Fox, uh, you know, the Fox Searchlight Movie Studio. And that kind of taught me a lot about the movie business, which is it's controlled by gatekeepers. There's a handful of studios, and they really make all the money. And, you know, we as the sort of entrepreneur, as the producer who took all the risk, this is not really a reward for that risk. And, um, you know, very, it's very different than the internet business where you're taking, you're taking a similar kind of risk, very hard to execute, you know, huge chance of failure, but at least when you hit it, there's a giant reward there. And so that was the big lesson for me. And on the heels of things for smoking, that's when I actually created Yammer is I was like, well, look, if I'm going to do something super risky, at least I want to be in a position to get rewarded for it if it works. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmental Environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. 
Plus. When you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk big picture now. You've been in Silicon Valley for a long time. And by the way, that's fascinating. Do you think you'll ever fund any other movies? Maybe because you're just so committed to the idea that it's getting out there um, as opposed to the you know remunerative return that you might be able to re- uh, recoup? Yes, and I think that's the way you have to look at it. I actually have another movie that's um, in the can, so to speak. Um, it's called Dolly Land. It's a movie about the painter Salvador Dolly. Uh, ben Kingsley, you know, the multi- Academy Award winner plays Dolly. Uh, it's directed by a great director named Mary Heron. It's actually done. We we made it as an independent movie uh, over the past year, and we're taking it to film festivals later this year. And uh, I think it, we've been accepted to the Toronto Film Festival, and there's a couple others we're looking at. So it's exciting. I mean, we're going to take it to a film festival and, and try to sell it and see what happens. Um, you know, I hope it makes money, but you know, I've I've gotten used to the idea that, you know, it's very, very hard to make money in the movie business. It's not why I do it. I do it because I love movies and I like the subject matter and um it's a passion project for everyone who's involved. So so yeah, I you know, I'm still sort of interested in the movie business and do it, but it's you gotta see it as a hobby or you're gonna be disappointed, I think. Are actors harder to manage than other employees? Uh, it's case by case. Um, most of them are very professional and are a delight to work with. And then you have a handful who are known as difficult. But to be honest, um, the, the ones who are difficult, they don't last that long. I mean, there's a kind of old uh, saying in Hollywood, there's a life's too short list. And if you're an actor, you really don't want to get on the life's too short list because people <laughs> just hire you. <laughs> Uh, we're talking to David uh, David yeah. Sachs about uh, wins and losses in his career across a variety of fields. All right, let's talk um, big picture here on tech. I, I, one reason I'm so excited to talk to you, and, and I appreciate all the time you've given us, is for what I do, um, and I testified in Congress about this uh, in front of the House uh, Judiciary Subcommittee, I can see the power of Facebook for what they can do I can see the power of Twitter just for the content that we create at OutKick. You know, I can go in and look at the charts and tell you basically, hey, the algorithm is favoring us today or this month. Hey, they've decided they don't like what we're writing and they are writing us off of the algorithm page. Um, And it seems, based on my experience, that the bias always runs against us whenever we write something favorable. I'll give you an example. Uh, when we had Donald Trump on for the first time on my Sports Talk radio show, we wrote a bunch of articles about it at OutKick. Our traffic basically vanished on social media 
literally within a day or two of all of those articles. And it was Trump primarily talking about sports going up on OutKick. It was clear that we had been flagged in some way. Certainly the same thing has happened when we wrote about masks or we wrote about COVID. Um, From a business perspective, not from a political perspective, does that make sense that they would be behaving, these big tech companies, and I'm talking about OutKick specifically, in a way that clearly is discriminatory in terms of the distribution of articles from sites like mine. Does that make sense to you from a, not from a, you know, what's better for the country perspective? Does it make sense from a business perspective? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think they're doing it because for ideological reasons. Yeah. And um, now what, I think what happens is they start with a business rationale that seems to make sense. So for example, they will, let's say you're a social media site and uh, you start with the content moderation department because there's just certain kinds of content that just shouldn't be on there. I mean, people threatening violence or, you know, harassing other users or using profanity or obscenity, and they don't want that to be part of their social network. So they create a content moderation team to basically take down that stuff. And, you know, we're, no one really has a problem with that. But then the problem is that the people actually doing the content moderation have an ideological bias and they start indulging that bias. And the fact of the matter is that if you're in Silicon Valley, you know, the prevailing orthodoxy is everyone kind of drinks from the same monocultural fountain. They all have the same political views. This stuff has been polled many times yeah. and you can see it. And so half the time they don't even realize what they're doing uh, when they indulge in, in this bias. But yeah, the bias absolutely creeps in. And then it starts to become official policy. Um, I think something similar has happened at, at Google where, you know, you've got the search algorithm and the search algorithm might produce some results that seem offensive to people. So they introduce, you know, what they call human interventions. But then as soon as you allow humans the process, they carry with them their preconceived biases and they start indulging those biases. And the problem is that none of us have any transparency into those decisions. And I think we have a right to know when we're being downranked or the algorithm is sort of suppressing our content, we should have a right, or or we've been kicked off one of these networks. There's no explanation that comes with us. And I think we should have due process rights to at least know why, to know when and why uh, we've been downranked or downvoted or something like that. And is that the idea behind the idea of an open algorithm marketplace effectively so that we could go in? And I'm just using OutKick as an example, which is owned by Fox now. But when you're downranked, if you are a business that is reliant on advertising, that can take money directly out of your pocket. And the lesson that they are instructing to business owners is you play games and share content that we want to be shared or else, right? There's an implicit threat from a business perspective that is hanging over the algorithmic problems that can arise. What's a solution? Not necessarily, again, from a political perspective, but you just kind of kind of walked through us. If you were just trying to be as open and transparent as possible, is it a public algorithm so that everybody could see what results are occurring? Well, this is what Elon has suggested with respect to Twitter, is he says he wants to open source the algorithm. And so the idea is, yeah, you would be able to see how the algorithm works. And if there's a human intervention, you would know that. And so that does give you, well, first of all, it gives you an assurance 
that they're not putting their thumb on the scale and discriminating against certain people because of their their uh, viewpoints. Uh, but also it would give you some due process to know that when there's an intervention against you, you at least know what's happened. Um, so that, that, that's why Elon's been pushing that idea of, of open sourcing the algorithm. Um, I think it's a great idea. I mean, we need more transparency around the decision these big tech companies are making because, frankly, they have enormous power. I mean, by and large, they are monopolies, and they control the public square. The public square has been privatized. Um, you know, when the founders or the framers of the Constitution started the country, the town square was a place you would go to. It's like the courthouse steps, and you pull out a soapbox, and you could talk, and people gather around to listen. That's what the town square meant. Today, the town square are all these giant social networks. I mean, that is where people assemble. That is where political speech occurs. And yet, there are no limitations on their ability to, you know, to deplatform you or discriminate against you. And they don't even—they're not even obligated to provide any transparency around that. And so I think we need more due process on these big monopolistic companies uh, when they restrict our speech. I'll give you an example, by the way. Google News obviously drives a lot of traffic. Um, no, no, People out there may not realize it, but Google News is wildly influential. When Fox bought OutKick, they went back through all these social media relationships. And I've been saying for a long time, yeah, we're registered with Google News, but never our stories come up, even stories where we might break news. Other people, right, will show up on the Google News alerts. We won't. Fox did a deep dive and they said, oh, you'd been mischaracterized and you hadn't been showing up in Google News for years. It's amazing how often the mischaracterization seems to only run one way, right? Like... (laughs) Uh, and and so I'm incredibly skeptical that at some point someone at Google wasn't unha- was you know unhappy, and they just decided, hey, I'm going to move the OutKick uh, algorithm you know feeder or whatever over into this little box where it'll kind of disappear. Um, and if you're a independent business, you don't have the resources or the relationships to even get things like that rectified. And uh, and that's why I think the idea that Elon is trying to put in place could be so potentially influential, which is just, hey, we're going to have content-neutral policies and people will have optics on things. And, and David, I don't know if you paid attention to it. I'm sure you did. But you know, the day that Elon announces that he's reached acquisition terms, suddenly my Twitter feed comes alive and I'm adding tens of thousands of followers at a rapid rate. It's hard for me to believe that in some way Twitter's not trying to bury the evidence of what they've been doing. So when neutral engineers come back and start to look at the algorithms they have in place there's not necessarily the same evidence that there would have been if somebody like elon weren't acquiring the company it's going to be really interesting to see what happens if elon's able to close this deal i guess they're still still up in the air whether that's going to happen but it'll be really interesting to see what comes out after he acquires the company because we just don't have any visibility into how they moderate content or upvote or downrank content, how the algorithm works, what the, again, the manual. Trending topics is wildly influential. And I think that's a total cesspool, by the way, for somebody who does what I do. Uh, They decide what trends, they decide how they're going to characterize what trends in a positive or negative fashion. Um, It's just such a rigged game. And do you think that one, uh, see, my theory is one unrigged game, right? So if Elon is able to acquire Uh, uh, sorry, acquire Twitter. What I think would happen is if there are wildly divergent results that suddenly start to happen at Twitter, 
and we can see a discrepancy between what's going on on Twitter and what's going on on Facebook and what's going on on Instagram and all these different social media outlets, then it puts a lot of pressure on these other companies to also be honest and transparent about what they're doing. Is there a logic to that based on your knowledge of how tech companies work that that could occur, that that influence could become substantial? I think so, because Elon, I mean, this is what's so important about what Elon is doing, is that he's drawing a line in the sand here, and he's opposing censorship, and he's also setting an example for all these other companies. One of the the, the things about the censorship that's taken place that's so discouraging is the way that it all seems to be done in unison. So when Trump was turned off Twitter back in January 2020, they all did it. Every site did it within days of that decision. So they all seem to be acting in concert, in lockstep. I've called it a speech cartel. If they were getting together for the purpose of fixing prices, let's say advertising prices, of course. everybody would be up in arms saying that's illegal. But if they get together for the purpose of fixing speech and what you can say or what you can't Which, say... Which, by the way, is so much more dangerous than from a, from a democracy perspective than fixing advertising costs. Absolutely. I mean, look, the the employees of these companies have enormous power over our public discourse and public debate. They were never elected to have that power. And back 20 years ago, when I was doing Internet stuff, we never believed when we were creating these platforms, we never believed it was our job to put our thumb on the scale and prefer certain views over others. We just thought it was our job to let the users communicate with each other. And somehow that mission changed. And now the employees of these companies have gone from being umpires to basically being participants to being partisans in the marketplace of ideas. And I think what you hear from Elon is, listen, I'm a moderate. I'm going to restore the balance. I'm going to let the users communicate the way that they want to. I'm going to be nonpartisan. I'm going to be a fair referee. And that's what's so powerful about what he's doing. And I I hope it will set an example for these other companies. You mentioned uh, Dolly Land, which I'll be interested to see as well, as a passion project. It's not necessarily being done to make money. One of the arguments Mm -hmm. that I've made for a while, and maybe Elon is doing this, I'm curious if you think he's doing it, is the passion project being brought to bear in the world of larger media. I think to a large extent, Media in the United States is broken. And what I mean by that is you've got the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and their narrative bias to me is so clear. And you have one alternative, which is basically Rupert Murdoch and Fox. In fact, if Rupert Murdoch didn't exist, there would be almost no, it's crazy to think about, but there would be almost no full fruition of media outlets in the country right it's basically one man and his family who said hey we're going to create fox news and we're going to buy the wall street journal and we'll run the new york post and now they bought outkick and they have these different assets that are trying to fight back a battle not necessarily in my opinion on a right-wing basis but just for the 70 percent of the country that isn't gone insane it feels like to some extent there is an opportunity for passion projects and media which may not return a lot of money but do have massive influence. Do you think that's what Elon is doing with Twitter? Is it his passion project? Is it a version of Dolly Land for him? Or do you think he's looking at it as a big moneymaker? I think first and foremost, like you said, it's a passion project. I think that this is about the principle of free speech for him. When he says that he's going to restore Twitter to being an open town square, that really is his main motivation. And it always starts with the mission for him. I think he's got enough money. He wouldn't just be 
doing this as a business deal. Now, the history of Elon's ventures is that he starts with the mission and you know the, the passion project, as you say, but over time he figures out how to make them a great business. Certainly that's the case with Tesla. The passion project there was to move the world to sustainable energy. So, But in the process of doing that, he's created the world's best car with SpaceX. He wants to get people to Mars. I mean, that really is the mission. But in the process of doing that, he's figured out, you know, Starlink and uh, how to make that a great business. Um, so I think he will figure out how to make Twitter into a great business. But I have no doubt that it's all about the passion for him. Politics. Obviously, you're involved in donating money. What's the best thing that national politics could do in your mind to advance American business interests? How much like the Biden administration to me is just a disaster in all respects. But a lot of politicians, it seems to me, the best outcome would just be don't do anything, (laughs) unfortunately, because of where we are. What can and should America be doing to advance entrepreneurial and capitalistic interests so that we maintain uh, leadership in risk-taking around the world? Well, the, the entrepreneurial energy in America is strong. I mean, this is historically our great advantage. It's our DNA, America. right? Our cultural DNA. Exactly. I mean, Americans are willing to take risks. They're not afraid of failure. If they do fail, they kind of dust themselves off and try again. There's not a huge stigma in our culture the way there is in Europe if you fail. And you got... VCs, people like us who are willing to write a check, and if it's a zero, so be it. We're not going to come break your kneecaps or even be too upset about it. Uh, You just don't have that mentality in other parts of the world. So that's what's strong there. And I think what you need from government is to create a stable environment with sound money and low taxes and reasonable spending levels just to not break the golden goose. And, you know, the problem in Washington right now is they are really threatened to break the golden goose. I mean, inflation's out of control as a result of this hyperspending um, and the money printing. I mean, you had the Fed. and If you and were running, and, so, sorry to cut you off, you're exactly right on yeah. this. If you're a business guy, you have to make a profit in order to, uh, that's how capitalism works. If you were running the government and you saw the books that the government is putting out on a yearly basis, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the business would go bankrupt with the books that the government is putting out right now. How long can this continue? You know, modern, modern monetary theory, the idea was, hey, we can print as much money as we want. There's no consequences. We're seeing consequences. When you got a $30 trillion national debt now, and we basically added $20 trillion in the last, you know, 10, 12 years, when you look from a business perspective at the nation's books, where are we and how troubled would you be purely from a business perspective on that? I think it's terrifying. We owe something like 130% of GDP now. I mean, we basically owe more than the entire amount of the output of our economy in our national debt. And what do we get for all of that debt? Um, so it's, it's really pretty scary. And I agree with you about MMT. I mean, that's the latest group of, of so-called experts that I think are going to be massively discredited. Uh, they claimed for years that we could print as much money as we want and spend as much as we want because I guess we were the world's reserve currency. There'd be no price to pay for that. And it's true that interest rates stayed low for a long time, but now they've rocketed it up and inflation has rocketed it up. And you're seeing it. Ordinary Americans feel a lot poorer because their wages have not kept up with inflation. And we've had a stock market crash because now the stock market is starting to price in you know, much higher interest rates. 
that are going to be necessary to tame the inflation. So it was just very irresponsible. Um, I mean, it's just a fundamental law that you cannot spend more than you make, not for very long. And, um, yeah, we just need fiscal sanity to return to Washington. You mentioned experts, uh, and I appreciate your time, and I know how busy you are. To me, one of the great lessons of the past several years has been how wrong experts can be. The experts who told us modern monetary theory there were going to be no consequences, certainly the experts surrounding so much of COVID. Uh, One of the reasons why I love capitalism is you really do have to put your money where your mouth is, and you have to place bets based on things like logic, based on numbers. Um, Where are we in the field of so-called experts right now? Were you someone who believed, I, I think probably the answer is no, on conventional wisdom in the first place, which is a business opportunity is really about recognizing that the conventional wisdom is wrong oftentimes or else everybody would be doing what you're doing. Isn't isn't what you do basically the exact opposite of what experts do? Yes, because if you listen to the experts with respect to any business opportunity, they will always tell you it's a bad idea because yes. they are fully ingrained in the old way of doing things. And they, they don't have the imagination to see that things could be done in a completely different way. I mean, look, we would never have founded PayPal if we had listened to all those payment experts back in 1999. And in fact, part of the reason we created PayPal is because we didn't know that much about payments. We weren't beholden to the old way of doing things. So listening to experts is something that really runs against the grain of an entrepreneur. And this whole idea of listening to authority because those people in power have some sort of credentials and that you should automatically listen to them and not consult your own faculties, your own common sense, that's an idea that I think is going to be offensive to any entrepreneur. And I think we've seen that now with politics over the last couple of years. I mean, everything the experts told us about COVID, for example, was just completely wrong. Yes. And I mean, we were told so many things, and then they all turned out not to be right. So, you know, having a healthy distrust of experts is a good idea in business or politics, I think. It's also the case that everything that they told us and allowed us to discuss on social media very often ended up being wrong. And when I kind of diagnose it, I'm curious what you think about this as we come to a close here. We've been talking with David Sachs. A lot of this comes down to risk analysis. Many people are really, really bad at analyzing risk, both financial and personal. And it seems to me that you talked about the American DNA, and I agree with you, is based on taking risk. I mean, you you don't get on a ship and decide to come to a new land and then get in a covered wagon and go all the way to the West Coast uh, because you have a high, if you don't have a high risk tolerance, right? It seems like our national risk tolerance in a social media era is being totally destroyed to the point where you saw all the time in the early days of COVID, well, if it saves just one life, well, if it saves just one life, we would have never committed airplanes. We certainly wouldn't have invented cars. Um, how much of this is just a failure to understand basic risk in both personal business and life? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you, you saw this during COVID as there was a total suspension of cost-benefit analysis in favor of this sort of zero COVID thinking, this idea that we completely stamp out COVID, which was just not possible, very clearly not possible. And there was a total refusal to, uh, to, to apply cost benefits in any of these lockdowns. I mean, we, I think it's very clear now that that whole policy of lockdowns 
It cratered the economy. It was devastating to the economy, but it didn't do anything to stop COVID. Right. And no one thought about that. Or, or, or the kids in school with the masks, you know, and, and the remote learning. I mean, we lost an entire year of schooling for so many kids in this country, and no one really thought to apply cost-benefit to that. You know, negligible benefit, if any, and the cost I think we're going to be feeling for a generation. So, yeah, we need to bring back benefit costs. The other thing we have to bring back is assumption of risk, you know, that there's a tradition in this country that you're allowed to do risky things, uh, you know, if you're willing to assume the risk. And we saw this work out, I think, very well in Florida, where they basically got on with their lives so much more quickly than the rest of the country. Um, because they allow people to make their own choices. And if you wanted to go out to a restaurant and risk getting COVID, that was your choice. Um, so we got to bring back these basic ideas. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just that the media culture doesn't really get it, but, um, but you're allowed to do risky things in this country, even if it doesn't work out for you. That's your choice. <laughs> Such as buying a Ferrari. All right, last question for you. Uh, uh, what advice would you give? There's a lot of people who are young that listen to these podcasts, this wins and losses podcast, because they're trying to build their own uh, culture, their own idea, their own uh, worldview. For someone who wants to get into business today, let's say that they are out there and they're 16 years old listening to this right now. What do you wish you had known when you were 16? What would you be telling young people they need to be doing today uh, to prepare themselves to make the kinds of decisions that you had the opportunity to make in your 20s, 30s, and 40s? I mean, the, the main thing I would have done differently was just get into business faster. Like we talked about, I kind of, I took some time and, and went to law school and um, I just didn't know how to get into it. And I think that what's great about um, entrepreneurialism today is there's so many opportunities. There's incubators now, there's young startups you can join. I just would have gotten into it a lot sooner and so I still think going to college is probably a good thing to do. I wouldn't necessarily encourage anyone to drop out, um, although certainly a lot of great entrepreneurs have had success dropping out, like Zuckerberg, like Bill Gates, so on. But, um, but I would say just get into it as quickly as possible. What, what you really want to do is go work at a startup where you can really learn, where there's some great founders. And it almost doesn't matter what the job is that you get. The important thing is – who you're associated with. And, you know, I learned so much working with people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk at my first startup at PayPal, and that enabled me to go on and then found my own companies and become an investor. So you really want to just work with the smartest people you can possibly find and do that as quickly as possible. Outstanding stuff, David Sachs. This has been a phenomenal discussion, wins and losses with Clay Travis. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. There's now 47 of these, I believe. So if you enjoyed this one, check out the other 46. Thank you. Thank you, Clay. appreciate it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host 
of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.